Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, Increasing Speed and Efficiency of Drug Development with Stable Pools. I'm Brady Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Allison Porter, head of Expression System Sciences at Lonza. Dr. Allison Porter first joined Lonza in 1998, where she spent 13 years working in the Cell Culture Process Development Group. In 2011, she joined Fujifilm Diosynth Biotechnologies as head of the Mammalian Cell Culture R&D Department and led the development of the company's Mammalian Expression Platform. Allison rejoined Lonza in 2016 as head of Process Development Sciences. She now serves as the head of the Expression System Sciences, a role that includes providing in-depth scientific and technical leadership to those working with Lonza's GS Gene Expression System. Allison specializes in gene expression systems and the development of recombinant cell lines. She holds a PhD in biotechnology from the University of Manchester. Thank you for joining us today, Allison. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I'd like to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience in the industry, and then what you see as the most pressing challenges that drug developers are facing at the moment. Hi, Brandy. So I've been in the industry for 25 years now and in a number of different roles. From a technical viewpoint, although I have been and I continue to be involved in many areas of the drug development pathway, my specialization is in mammalian expression systems and mammalian cell line development. If I think about my experience in the industry, I actually remember reading a piece in Nature a few months back about the FDA approving the 100th monoclonal antibody product 35 years after the first. And that actually set me off reminiscing. And I actually commented on the article on LinkedIn. And my reminiscing went down the path of recalling being an undergrad in the early to mid 90s and hearing about a pioneering new therapy called OKT3, which was actually an antibody in a lecture. And I was intrigued, but little did I know then that I would shortly join many of you out there who've gone on to become colleagues and friends to develop life-changing antibodies and, of course, other molecules of ever-increasing complexity these days. And I also then started to think forward as well and started to think about many of the milestones we've passed along the way from a cell line development and upstream viewpoint. So going serum-free, going protein-free, breaking the one gram per liter barrier. And I remember being so excited. And then these days, we'd be disappointed with one gram per liter for an antibody. We also remember significantly shortening cell line development timelines. And a lot of that came from things like pre-adapting host cells to desired culture conditions and introducing pools and single round cloning. I guess other milestones have included automation, big tanks, single-use tech, continuous processing, engineered host cell lines. I could simply just keep going on. From a challenges point of view today, I'd say we're still hearing the same refrain, and that's higher, faster. So higher titers, more product, and getting it into the shortest time possible so you can be first in the clinic. Now, one area where that gets interesting is in the world of more complex proteins, which can often be more difficult to express and harder to achieve the desired characteristics. And we're seeing more of these coming through in product pipelines, but still with that desire for higher and faster. Alison, I have to say, I really enjoyed your walk down memory lane. I've been covering the industry for a long time, and sometimes you forget how many advancements we've made in the industry and also how far we've come. 
One of the things I thought was interesting was that you mentioned higher, faster, and first to clinic as being a ongoing uh, challenge and pressing need for drug developers. And that really hasn't changed. It stayed a consistent issue. And you also mentioned pools as a possible solution. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about stable pool expression for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar. What is it and what is its history? Pools aren't new, but they've certainly become more of a, shall we say, area of interest and a talking point in recent times. But I guess that's not really answered your first point of what is a pool. Um, And the simple answer is it's a mixed population of stably transfected cells. If we take a step back and we think about transient and stable transfection, well, in transient transfection, recombinant DNA does not integrate into the host genome. Therefore, it does not replicate and it's eventually lost as cells divide. And this approach is typically used in discovery when you're assessing multiple variants. It's really good if you need relatively small amounts of material quickly. The other end of the scale is stable transfections. Now, they do begin transiently, but it is followed by what we would term an infrequent but critical event where the recombinant DNA integrates into the host genome. And integration simply means the product gene can be replicated and descendants of those transfected cells therefore also express the product. And this is important if long-term gene expression and large amounts of material are required. Typically, work involving a stable transfection also requires a cloning step to meet current regulatory requirements of a cell line used for the manufacture of a biotherapeutic originating from a single cell. So a pool can be described as a halfway house between a transient transfection and a clonal cell line from a stable transfection. And in fact, these days, most people would recognize the pool as the start point from which they clone. So a pool takes longer to create and obtain material from than a transient transfection, but it takes less time than a clonal cell line. It could generate more material than a transient transfection, but is thought of as generating less than a clonal cell line, although that line is becoming blurred these days. And I can actually think of a slide we used to present in the mid-2000s that diagrammatically showed transients producing mig to gram quantities in days, pools, gram to hundreds of grams in weeks, and clonal cell lines, hundreds of grams to kigs in months. And thinking about my earlier comment where I said pools weren't new, well, on internal projects within Lonza, we first started looking at and using pools for various reasons in the early 2000s. And for our customers, it was the mid-2000s when we first started utilizing pools on projects. Initially, it was just to supply material early in the development process for them, but they soon became a main part of the cell line construction workflow itself, helping to reduce timelines. And over time, their use and uses have increased substantially. From your description, it's clear that pools can be very helpful in a variety of areas. Could you share for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the use of pools, what can you use pools for? And when do you think pool expression is most appropriate? Yeah, good question. So one thing that we co-opted pools for pretty early on was reducing cell line development timelines. If we think back to the late 1990s, it was not uncommon to see CHO cell line development timelines of well over a year and possibly even pushing two years. Even when you come into the early to mid-2000s, CHO cell line development timelines of over nine months were common. 
And that's going to be pretty shocking to many people listening, no doubt, who've joined in an era where we talk about cell line development in terms of weeks. And a number of things contributed to bringing those timelines down, and that included pre-adapting host cells to desired culture conditions and the introduction of pools. And just to explain why pools had an impact, prior to using pools, it was typical in an early process flow to make a cell line, so transfect, plate out at densities such that you're aiming to only see single colonies in the majority of wells showing growth. So that's not a formal cloning step by any shape of the imagination. You'd expand those colonies and you'd select a cell line. And then you would clone from a number of cell lines. So you'd end up going back through those expand and select steps for a second time. And as you can imagine, when we introduced pools and used them to clone from, it had a big impact on the timeline as you didn't have to go through those expansion and selection steps twice. These days, with the advent of more complex proteins, we can start to think about other ways that pools might help us to reduce timelines for such molecules. So, for example, in parallel to cloning, you could assess the multiple pools, looking at product concentration and or product characteristics to identify the best pools to select a clone from. Or you could start looking at developing or optimizing the upstream process at this early stage if you suspect a particular molecule may have special requirements. Another thing that pools can be used for is material supply, um, but that can actually cover a number of different uses. So I think I commented earlier on how a pool takes longer to create and generate material from than a transient transfection, but you can generate more material. So a place where pools started to be used early on and continue to be used is when you're in the late stages of discovery and have only a small number of variants but want larger amounts of material. The two challenges with transients is generating material with the same product characteristics as will be seen in the stable clonal cell line. And this is especially true if you're using a cell line from a different species in transients. And I'm thinking HEC versus CHO here and generating that material reproducibly. Both challenges that pools can overcome. Interestingly, I was actually talking with somebody recently about introducing pools into their discovery work programs, and they were pretty excited. First, simply because of the potential of having material that could match that from a clonal cell line, as they would be using the same host cell line and process as the future clonal cell line. Secondly, he was telling me how people kept coming back to him and asking for more material and something he struggled to do reproducibly with transients. And he said he didn't care if the pools took him slightly longer, if it overcame this issue. And he especially liked the idea of cryopreserving a pool and going back to it time and time again to generate more material. Finally, I guess I'd say even once interclonal development, pools can be used for material supply to simply provide you with larger amounts of material or to assess the selected production process and produce material to feed other development stages. Uh, and that can happen in parallel to the remainder of cell line development and thereby help timelines again. I think that's a really great point you make around the need for more materials. And we've heard that a lot as well, that that can really lengthen a timeline if more material is needed and it's difficult to produce. Having an easy way to manufacture additional material would do a lot to shorten the timelines. And I think that's obviously a goal across the industry. I wanted to talk a little bit about high titers. Obviously, achieving high titers is always of importance, particularly at early stages. 
And I'm wondering what sort of titers do you expect at the pool expression stage and how would that help from a drug developer's perspective? So for antibodies, we typically see on average around 2.4 grams per litre in pools when our standard GS system and platform upstream process is used, although we have seen over 6.5 grams per litre. So it's fair to say it's not unusual to see slightly lower product concentrations from pools compared to final clonal cell lines, where the range is 2 to 6 grams per litre with an average of 4 grams per litre for antibodies when you drop straight into a platform process. So that's no process optimization work. It's probably also worth mentioning here, though, another technology we have, and that's the transposon-based technology, GS Piggyback. When this is used, we found that pools recover faster post-transfection and that it can result in a boost to titers achieved with pools. And we've seen substantial increases in titer for a hard-to-express antibody, complex antibody and a bispecific when we've used GS piggyback. And then I guess put simply, more product means drug developers can undertake the studies they need to and speed towards being first in clinic. Yes. And as we've talked about several times in the podcast, speed to clinic continues to be a key driver in the industry. So I think that's a really important point. I want to ask a little bit about the product concentration of the pools. How predictive is the product concentration of the pools to a clonal cell line at later stages? And then also, how representative is the stable pool material? Given my earlier comments on titers we observe, you'll probably not be that surprised that if we consider how predictive the pools are of product concentration from clonal cell lines, you'll see that the pools aren't completely predictive. But they are absolutely good enough if you want to use those pools for ranking purposes when you're doing something like early process development work. More importantly, in one of our newest service offerings, something we call IBEX Design, we do use stable pool material for process evaluation and formulation activities, which helps us to deliver our shortest timelines for antibodies. Now, this approach is only possible due to the stable pool material being sufficiently representative of that from the final clonal cell line. Now, we've generated substantial data from multiple programs indicating that the stable pool material we generate with this new approach can be safely used for the purposes of process evaluation and formulation development. And we have example data where we've demonstrated such comparability. So in these, we've successfully demonstrated that the process performance between the pooled and clonal material is comparable in that we see good comparability in growth profiles. Additionally, and most importantly, we've also demonstrated that the product characteristics are comparable. Having looked at this for things like charge variant, glycosylation, product purity, and impurity profiles. Well, I think it's really exciting the way that you're looking at using pool materials for formulation and also for setting up downstream processes. Along those lines, I'm wondering in what other areas or applications might pools be used in the future? That's a really good and timely question. I'd say for coming up the last 10 years, there's been on and off conversations within the industry on whether material generated from pools could be used for tox material or even for phase one clinical trials. And of course, if this is done, those questions around comparability material we touched on a moment ago are going to be critical. Interestingly, the current COVID-19 pandemic has pushed this concept up front and centre due to the big reduction in timelines this could result in. 
And I actually did a joint webinar with Trent Monroe from the University of Queensland last year, where Trent spoke about their rapid development of a potential COVID-19 vaccine. And they'd actually use material generated from pools when they first went into the clinic. So given what's happened in the last 18 months, there's now certainly a lot more talk around use of pools and there is now some precedence for use of pools. And I think we're likely to see this push much more in the future, especially and particularly for antibodies where the industry has so much experience. Alison, I really want to thank you so much for your time today. I think you've certainly made the case for incorporating the use of pools. I'm sure you've piqued the interest of a lot of our listeners. For those listeners who are interested in incorporating pools and maybe don't have a lot of experience with working with pools, how would you recommend that they get started with pool expression? I think this is a really good opportunity for me to plug Lonza's GS system here. So, You could, if you've got no experience, consider Lonza generating material from pools for you using Lonza's GS system. Or alternatively, if you want to do work in your own labs, you can actually take out what's called a GSREA, which would give you access to Lonza's host cell lines, vectors and protocols for generating stable pools, as well as cell lines in your own labs. So you could actually have cell lines, vectors that we know are good for generating stable pools, as well as cell lines. And actually work with that and have instructions for how to do that in your lab. You could also access GS piggyback that I mentioned earlier. And you'd also have access, importantly, to technical support from SMEs within Lonza who can help you if you had any issues when implementing the process. Thank you for providing those great resources. I'll be sure that we put links in the show notes to the resources that you mentioned so that listeners can go there and learn more. I just want to thank you again for your time today. It's been so interesting to learn more about the use of pools and also how they might be used to improve processes in the future. I really appreciate you sharing that with myself and our listeners. And thank you again for being interviewed today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To listen to other podcasts related to the discovery, development, and manufacture of biologics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com. And for downstream process topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.